Hello and welcome to this episode of the Jane's World of Intelligence podcast. I'm Terry Patar. I lead the Jane's Intelligence Unit. I'm joined on this episode by a very special guest, Sir David Omand, who has agreed to come and talk to us about his latest book, How Spies Think, which is a fascinating read. I want to say, actually, rather than How Spies Think, if, if I were to name the book, it would have a much less catchy title, but one that's probably more descriptive, which is How Intelligence Officers Should Think If They've Had the Right Training and Have Applied It. Um, but David, it would be great to get you know some of your thoughts and some of your description about the book and what went into it. But just to give a sort of brief introduction to yourself, you know, as a former director of GCHQ and somebody who's held various sort of senior roles within the intelligence community in the UK, you've seen it and done it all, really, I think, in terms of intelligence work. And then having worked in academia over the last decade or so, I want to say, um, I think, you know, you've probably also had a lot of interactions now with people outside of the intelligence community but doing similar things. So um, this is a conversation I've been really looking forward to for a number of weeks, actually. So thank you for, for joining us and welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm going to hold up the front cover of the book. <laughs> I have a copy here there with me. Is. Yep. Um, <laughs> there we are. I particularly liked the cover, actually. I like the sort of cipher style. I mean, it's, a, it's a little bit of a marketing thing, no doubt, but the, uh, the cipher the is quite That's nice. The, the book plate. That's the front cover. Yeah. If you wrap the cover over it, of course, you then get how spies think. And so for, I do, for anyone who's I, listening to the podcast and hasn't seen it yet, there is yeah. So there is a, a wraparound cover that is quite a neat uh, indication of I think the the art of intelligence in terms of uh, trying to pick out what you're looking for in amongst the mass of information. Yes, you're quite right that the title may be slightly uh, over the top. <laughs> uh, well, I suppose it's, it's, it's made there is an important message, mm. you know. So I, I wanted people to read. I want people to read the book because there's an important message. I mean, I started thinking about this book after the Brexit referendum and then the 2016 US presidential election, and I found I was getting, as I think many people would be, rather angry at mm. the way in which in social media these very important events were being reflected and a kind of rising tide of half-truths and distortions, some outright lies, not all coming from Russia, I may say. Um, And the way in which social media was being used to uh, widen divisions in society and set us at each other's throats. An important driver was that uh, we're beginning to lose touch with what I would call rational analysis in favor of the emotional impact, which is what catches attention on social media. And when we have to take a decision, any of us, and where to live, what what job to apply for, what to make of a situation, whether to wear a mask in the street this afternoon, when you come to take a decision, there are two kinds of thought that you have to hold together in your mind and somehow bring together. One is what you do, which is rational analysis of the situation, trying to advise customers on what's going on and why. And the other part is emotional. When you come to a decision, what do you want to get out of the decision? Why are you taking it? What are your hopes and fears? Do you fear something and you hope the decision will avoid something bad happening? And of course, you have to bring those two together. And my fear is that it's really in the nature of social media, that the emotional is tending to leach over into the rational. And rational analysis is increasingly being distorted, because the basic information is not 
accurate enough and correct or downright deceptive and because the quality of thought that is being applied to it is is driven by these uh, irrational impulses now you have to have the dispassionate and the passionate uh, the interesting thing about government is the lengths to which we go to separate those two kinds of thought so we have the Joint Intelligence Committee. I spent seven years sitting on the Joint Intelligence Committee, <laughs> desperately trying to be as impartial and rational as possible in the judgments we offer ministers. Then you've got ministers with a democratic mandate. They are rightly the people who get the final say on what is to be done. And of course, the book was virtually complete before COVID hit us, COVID-19 hit us. But that is a perfect ex example of this tension between the dispassionate rational analysis of the SAGE committee scientists and the government attempting to respond to the mood of the people with their democratic mandate, knowing they are going to be held accountable, very visibly accountable, for the decisions that get taken. So it is genuinely hard, but my fear why I wrote the book was really to say, can we please have a little more on the analytical side? And that's why I've spent quite a lot of the book explaining some of the analytical tools that intelligence analysts use so that we can all, I think, have better grounded evidence-based decisions. I think that's something that chimes very much with my own thoughts, but also the thoughts of a few other people we've spoken to on, the, on this podcast in previous episodes, where a lot of people have lamented I think the lack of critical thinking that we're seeing people display increasingly and not necessarily people working in, in the intelligence field, but but from people we encounter in all walks of life. And one of the things that's come across strongly in a lot of the conversations we've had around topics like disinformation and how people are working with the current sort of information environment that we're all involved in using social media, which you've mentioned there, um, and trying to make decisions using all of that information, that there just isn't enough attention paid to basic critical thinking skills sometimes, which really lie at the heart of a lot of the analysis and the techniques that you've outlined in the book. And I, I think that it's, it's a welcome contribution to that in terms of trying to get people to think more carefully and to think in a way that is more structured. And to be able to do that, which, as you said, rightly is difficult. It is difficult to separate the more rational, analytical mode of thinking from the emotional drivers that, that shape decision making sometimes. And that's the same for individuals as much as it is, I think, for organizations and, and governments. What I like, though, about uh, you know the way you've, you've gone about explaining the process, explaining those techniques, is that you haven't tried to bore people with too much theory. <laughs> I think you've made it very practical in the sense that you've talked through some case studies, you've talked through some real examples, things that you've been involved in in your career, um, but also things that are, I think, more tangible for people to understand. Was that a deliberate sort of thing that you wanted to do? You wanted to sort of try and communicate that and, and get across some of these ideas by not being too theoretical or too opaque in the way you describe them yes i think it's very important and indeed explanatory skills are something that in this sort of area you really need to work on i mean we can all think of the way in which some of the situation over covid mm. is being explained you know putting a graph up on television for about yeah. 10 seconds and simply pointing to a line that is going upwards 
is meant to send an emotional signal. It's not a rational signal signal because you can't actually see what the scale of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, this is this is very basic. But we need both kinds of thinking. I mean, don't misunderstand what I'm saying in the book mm. as meaning you have to be cold and hard hearted. It's the passion that makes us human. And, you know, woe betide us if we ever end up with governments where you don't have leaders who are passionate about the things that we elected them to do. But I'm not naive. Um, politics is a contact sport. The public has always aimed off for uh, in, in traditional debate for exaggeration, a bit of political swagger. Um, we know that rivalries and um, personal ambitions, that's part and parcel of democratic politics. That's not the problem. The problem is that we are being faced increasingly with politicians and others uh, who, who pontificate on these things, who blur and in some occasions even deny the very nature of a fact. The Rand Corporation wrote a very interesting report um, a year or two back on this, where they called it the spread of truth decay. Yes. Yeah, it was fantastic. And that's a lovely report. way of putting it. And you can, mm. you can actually see it happening. Some statement is made at the supporters of a particular point of view. They think, I'd like that to be true because it fits with my worldview. And with constant repetition on social media, that becomes, well, it might be true. And that slides too easily into, well, as far as I'm concerned, it's as good as true. Yeah. And mm -hmm. that is extremely dangerous for mm -hmm. a healthy democracy, let alone to have stability within a nation and uh, not have people falling into conspiracy thinking. Another subject that I, I tackle in, in the book. Mm -hmm. I think you've touched on a few really important points there just in, in that um, description of, you know, what, what you, were, you were aiming at with the book. And, you know, you described there some of the graphs we've seen recently on in some of the government briefings on COVID. And you've hit my thought exactly, which was which I had when I saw them, which is unless somebody's got a really good understanding of statistics, they're not going to understand those graphs, quite frankly. And there's no point displaying that data in that way. But what struck me was that the, the, the briefings have led with that, that they've started with that data. And it's almost like a blizzard of data being thrown at people. And I wonder, if, I, you know, I, don't, I wonder if how well planned the communication strategy has been. But as you said, part of getting across the thinking behind a government's decision making is to explain it clearly to the public and I don't think they've really helped themselves in this case um, but you know that's probably as an, an aside in, in terms of what we're talking about here but I can remember Tony Blair and the speech he gave in at the Edinburgh Festival one year coming out this statement what matters today is impact mm. and it is yeah. that emotional impact the graph is going up or if you're uh, uh, you're trying to convey the opposite impression, you show a graph that's going down. Mm -hmm. And in the book, I call this framing. Right. And every television producer knows that the intro music, the little clip you show at the beginning, frames the viewer's expectations of what is going to follow. Now, if you're an analyst, on the other hand, or if you're just a citizen and you've got a big decision to take, you can't afford to think that way. Mm. You've got to kind of separate out and say, you know, is the price of the used car that I'm being offered 
comparable to similar prices for similar models in the marketplace. Am I getting a bargain or the opposite? And that kind of, of very basic rational thinking. And it takes you into more advanced thinking where you're thinking further ahead. Should I insure against the possibility my house burns down? That's a careful calculation. In some instances, you might say, well, the old banger that I'm driving, uh, I'll take, I have to take out third party insurance. I'll make sure I do that. Do I want expensive, comprehensive insurance? No, if I have an accident, I'll bear the loss myself. And these are these are everyday decisions that we can all understand, which is why, as you say in the book, I've tried to illustrate throughout with some, if you like, rather corny examples, <laughs> but ones which bring home that this is not an esoteric art for mm. people in Jane's intelligence alone. <laughs> this is something, what you do, you have yeah. to keep telling other people uh, you know, this is how you should should be thinking. The book essentially is in three parts. And the first part is explaining a very basic model of analytical well, thought. You say the very second... basic, but I found it very actually useful. Um, and I liked the fact that you started with it. I, I, I mean, I think you're referring there to the C's model that you, yeah. you described, which um, might be worth just unpacking a little bit, I think, for people listening, because... I really like it. And I think it's a great way for analysts and anyone who's trying to think around problems that are similar to intelligence problems to be able to understand the world around them and be able to make decisions. And it, it, I like the fact that it's, it's for me, it's more practical application of intelligence methods rather than uh, what, what I liked was that you didn't start off by talking people through the intelligence cycle, yeah. which for me is one of those intelligence cliches, which I think is not necessarily useful or relevant anymore. Yeah. Well, I wrote an article some years ago about intelligence cycles saying it was completely <laughs> redundant in the, in the digital mm-hmm. age because everything, Indeed. it's a network, it's not a cycle. But that's by the by. Um, yes, I, I, I decided so, that the best way of trying to put over a, a rational analysis was to think about the outputs. So if you're an analyst, you have customers. Yeah. Um, whether they're in government or the private sector. Uh, if you're an individual, of course, you're your own analyst. <laughs> but analysts have customers. So what are the potential outputs that an analyst could provide for a customer? And the first, so I have this acronym, C's, S-E-E-S. And the first S in C's is situational awareness. So can you tell the customer what is going on, where and when. Very basic stuff. Particularly important in cyberspace. You know, who's in the network? When, where did you detect this intrusion or whatever it might be? And we all know that situational awareness uh, is not always straightforward. Some of the material you may pick up is deceptive, uh, deliberately. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some is just confusing. So, My subtitle of my book is 10 Lessons in Intelligence. And the first lesson is that our knowledge of the world is always fragmentary, incomplete, and is sometimes wrong. And that's the starting point. So there are very few areas where you have complete certainty. And even if you think you have, just remember the only way information can ever get inside your head 
as a customer or indeed as an analyst is through one of your senses. Yes. You saw it, you read it, you saw the dial on some uh, sensor twitch. So it's your own senses. And the moment you start talking about information reaching you by your own senses, you've got to recognize that your brain is unconsciously filtering that information, which is what I call framing. Yep. So you see something on the ground, you are liable to jump to a conclusion pretty quickly. Uh, or there may be some bits of information which fit your prejudices. Those are the bits you select to present to the customer. And the bits that don't quite fit, well, you sort of downplay those. Every historian knows that's what you do. Your choice of sources to go and research will condition the answers you come back with, uh, which is why you keep getting books about the origins of the First World War. And they all disagree with each other because if you pick a different bit of the uh, history to focus on, you're liable to come out with a different take on what was happening. So situational awareness is the first one, um, recognizing that it's fragmentary, incomplete, and sometimes wrong. The first E in C's is really important. That's explanation, because facts are dumb. Correlation is not causation. We all know that. Facts are dumb, and they need explaining. So let's take a fact. There's a young man in front of a magistrate's court uh, accused of throwing a bottle at the police, a police patrol. His fingerprints are on the fragments of the bottle. Does that mean he threw it or did the mob, as they rushed past his house, pick up a bottle from his recycling bin, which is the explanation that the defence lawyer will produce to counter the explanation from the prosecution lawyer? And every lawyer knows that narrative that connects facts together and gives them explanatory value is what you're trying to trying to convey. So explanation, I think, is the hardest bit of mm. the analytical art. And when you think of some of the situations British troops have been in to explain why a patrol was attacked in some corner of Helmand province, you would need to know the local languages, the local culture, psychology, social psychology, history, the geography of the region, all of that really to come to a convincing explanation of why some event uh, took place. And it's even more difficult if you start to think about big geopolitical uh, issues uh, and, uh, you know, whether it's uh, Syria or Crimea or the South China Sea and so on. It is difficult, but you need to do it. And then the second E in C's uh, is the estimation, a word that analysts I hope you all prefer uh, to prediction. Yes, prediction most conjures up in the mind of the customer that you've got a crystal ball, yeah, and you've paid good money for this prediction. Um, it's actually an estimation of how events might unfold on different assumptions. So I tend to bracket together in the book estimation and modelling. Yeah. And we see this perfectly with COVID-19. You've got the SAGE group of scientists. They make different assumptions about the rate of spread, about mask wearing. Uh, on the basis of those assumptions, you then model 
what's likely to happen over the next month of lockdown. Yeah. If you chose slightly different assumptions about compliance with, say, mask wearing, you come out with a different answer. And so making those uh, assumptions explicit to the customer, it's on this basis that I'm offering you this view of how estimate of how things will unfold. And that takes you into probabilistic language and how you describe something as being likely or very likely or probable or whatever, which we deal with in the book. So uh, estimation isn't always necessary. Sometimes for the purpose of the customer, it's enough just to know what's going on and have a decent explanation. And some things you just can't call. It's it's too difficult. It's too hard to call. But nonetheless, it's still really valuable to give the customer that grounding in these. This is the evidence we really think. And this is how we explain why we're seeing what we see. A lot of that comes down to the customer and what sort of decision they need to make off the yes. back of the intelligence, isn't it? Whether it's sure. something that's current and therefore they just need the situational awareness and um, the explanation or, or whether they do need the estimation and uh, plan to plan for the future. Where, where it gets very uh, complicated, of course, is where you've got some international relations situation. Uh, mm. My favourite example here is the 1990 Gulf War where Saddam has his tanks poised on the border with Kuwait. And the job of the analyst is to tell the foreign secretary or the secretary of state in Washington, is he going to cross the border with his tanks or not? And of course, the determinant is probably what Saddam himself thinks the United States will do if he does cross the border. So if he thinks the United States will stand aside, he'll do it. If he thinks is going to end up with a, uh, an international uh, task force uh, trying to depose him, he won't. So here you've got a situation where it's a genuine mystery because you can't get inside his head. And even if you've got good spies close to him, you're still not really going to know to, to that mystery. So in the end, you have to make some sort of... And that's where assumptions come in. You have to say, on the assumption that... This is how we think he'll act. But if, on the other hand, he is assuming that the United States will stand by and not intervene, he may well cross the border. So that's rationally how you go about dealing with those sort of complexities. But of course, whilst you're working away on your situational awareness, your explanation and your estimation, something creeps up behind you and hits you on the back of the head you weren't expecting. And that happens time and time again, Always. Which, which is why uh, I put the final S in C's, which is strategic notice. So some part of your mind or the corporate mind in business or in government has to be looking out for the next nasty coming over the horizon or the next big opportunity. Yeah. And. If you spot it early enough, you can position yourself, you can carry out the right kind of research, uh, you could tune up your sensors, your intelligence community to look out for the first signs of this happening. Uh, and uh, if it's COVID, uh, you might decide to invest a little bit in public health and stockpiles mm. and plans for rapidly expanding track and trace. And of yes. course, the truth is, that certainly when I was in the cabinet office after 9-11 and we published the government's risk register, we published risk matrices of likelihood against impact, 
a coronavirus pandemic was always in the top right hand corner. It was the most dangerous potential event uh, and uh, dominated terrorism, major accidents and so on. Yet we ended up without enough stockpile and without those plans. Now, the characteristics of most strategic uh, notice um, events can't really be predicted in advance. We couldn't have known the exact characteristics of the new disease because it it hadn't occurred. Mm -hmm. But you could have inferred from having strategic notice that that kind of species jumping disease mutates. And if we get one, we will need plans to do A, B and C. uh, And we will need to uh, have some PPE stockpiles and so on. And the same is true of many other potential uh, disasters, which happens. So uh, if you have a nuclear power station in your district, the local authority, the police services, the emergency services all have plans for what to do in the case of an accident. And they rehearse those plans regularly. Uh, As uh, I mentioned, insurance companies know there are certain kinds of risks Uh, They could insure, they could buy their foreign currency forward. There are Mm -hmm. things they could do to manage those kind of strategic risks, which if they happen, they happen. There's nothing, for the most part, there's nothing you can do to stop them. No, indeed. But, you know, and this is probably an aside to the the main sort of topic that we're discussing. But to what extent do you think that some of the decision making around planning for those kind of maybe maybe what would have at one point have been considered low probability but we know will be very high impact events planning for those and preparing for them requires a sort of focus on resilience and and to what extent do you think that actually over the last decade or couple of decades from what you've observed whether inside or outside government do you think there's been a cultural shift away from being prepared for that type of event and and having the resilience because we've become more focused on the here and now rather than thinking about those sorts of things that might come up and be massively disruptive? I, there was a, after 9-11, we put together a contest, the government's mm. counterterrorism uh, strategy and uh, the uh, preparation for those kinds of uh, uh, major, major events. Um, involved thinking about resilience. Um, you, the uh, preparation, the final P in the four famous four P's of contest, <laughs> involves two things. One is preparing for the immediate. So do you have the emergency services trained together? Do you have the right immediate resources? Will you manage the disruption very quickly? But the second is investing in resilience so that your normal life is restored as quickly as possible. Yeah. Mm. Uh, as well as just being able to absorb the initial impact, how quickly will it be before the telecom system is back online and an underground is running and so on, uh, airlines are flying again or whatever it, it might be. And we know that you can over time invest in more resilient infrastructure. You can't afford just to do it all at once. Uh, It's when something comes up for replacement. You Mm. say, if we're going to replace this uh, electricity switching center, 
let's move it off the floodplain. Yeah. Let's put it on a hill. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're building a telecoms system, the 5G system, a lot of thinking is going into how could we make this resilient so that even if one or two components or nodes or even suppliers fail, we will still have a system. And it's a little more expensive and it takes more safety engineering, but it's well worth doing. And in some areas, such as the physical construction of buildings, that's been taken to quite a fine art. So the slogan is secured by design. So if you put up a skyscraper in London these days, you have to apply certain standards, which will ensure a sort of management of the major risks of something going wrong and the thickness of the glass, the positioning of the car parks or whatever else it might be. And those kind of secured by design, resilient improvements aren't necessarily visible to the public, which is a good thing Mm. because in terms of the objective of British counterterrorism, it is normality. It is to maintain normality so you deny the terrorists what they're most seeking, which is to dislocate and disturb us. If they're not doing that, we're prevailing and they're losing. So if you can improve the resilience of the infrastructure, but not do it with, as it were, barbed wire and barriers and armed guards, then you're actually both enhancing resilience and reassuring the public that normal life can safely continue. That's just an example of the way this kind of thinking as you imply, leads you into some very practical conclusions of things to do. What I think we, the nation suffered, of course, was 2007, 2008, the long period of austerity that followed the great crash, the fact that resources for public services, and indeed for even planning and thinking about that, uh, was severely restricted. So we've had a bit of a pause, uh, but I'm sure we'll get back to really, really working on uh, where best to invest in in resilience. So you've described the SEAS model, and that's in the first part of the book, but then uh, it would be useful to get an idea of how you then progress through the the other sections to talk about that whole application of intelligence analysis skills. Well, the second part of the book is, I can paraphrase, how you can get it wrong even with the best even with the best of intentions um analysts slip into error and uh, sadly in the intelligence world uh, the general public knows more about things that go wrong than they do about things that go right because things Indeed. that go right the agencies want to preserve and keep mm-hmm. secret so they can do it again uh, so there's but- an inherent bias in the your situational awareness of of what's going on in the intelligence world but if you just think about the 2000 the run-up to the iraq war in 2003 and all the problems there were in correctly assessing what saddam hussein was up to uh what uh, uh, ambitions he still retained for weapons of mass destruction particularly chemical and biological but also uh, his wish to reconstruct his nuclear program. And then you think about the uh, data points uh, that uh, were poured over by the intelligence analysts around the world and how some of those were deliberately misleading, like the Iraqi refugee uh, curveball, 
and some of them were overinterpreted. So something which could have more than one meaning were assumed always to have the worst possible meaning. And then another phenomenon which uh, we, we see in everyday life, which is you explain away the evidence that doesn't fit your prejudice. So if you have a firm view grounded in the reality of 1990 and the first Gulf War and the arms inspectors that went into Iraq after the war and were astonished to find how much chemical and biological capability he had and his nuclear ambitions, then when something comes along a few years later, that's the framing that you're going to give it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we all fell. I was on the Joint Intelligence Committee from what, September 2002, and w we all fell into those traps. So the second part of the book is really how you can, what you need to watch out for. And uh, one of my lessons in intelligence, I think it's the fifth, is it's our own demons that are most likely to mislead us, which mm. is about cognitive biases. And there's a vast literature of applied psychology research showing just how easy it is to fool yourself that you're thinking you're seeing what you want to see. So confirmation bias. Uh, but those, as, as I explained in the book, you have problems at an individual level, the individual analyst, and their prejudices or preconceptions, perhaps a kinder word than prejudice, their, their preconceptions. Um, you've got uh, group level biases. So you have an analytic group. It's very, very rarely it will be an individual. It'll be a group from across the intelligence community. Um, but they can fall into groupthink very easily. And then you've got the institutional level, where government itself or certain agencies may be rivalrous, they may be arguing a point, not willing to concede a point. So you have these potential sources of bias. Uh, at an individual level, a group level, and an institutional level. And you can find historical examples of, of all of them. But of course, once you begin to explain that, a lot of the risk evaporates because you know you may be falling into groupthink. And it only requires a sensible leader of a group to say, look, let's pause this conversation here and blogs, I want you uh, when we resume to make the case against. So you empower somebody to mm -hmm. argue the, the flaws and you you create a safe space. And this is one of my hobby horses, <laughs> that if you want good decisions, there have to be safe spaces where people can genuinely speak their mind without fear of retribution or privately being marked down as a troublemaker. Yes, I couldn't and agree more. I think that's so, that such a vital... Wonderful. Concept. And, you know, I'm well out of government service now, but I hear that it is harder and harder with relationships between civil servants and ministers to have, and special advisors, to have that safe space where you can actually talk truth mm. to power. And that, of course, is one of the key things yeah. that intel analysts are trying to do with their customers, mm. is talk truth and not shy away from writing something down because you know it's going to annoy the customer because they were about to 
spend a lot of money investing in a particular country and here you are saying that actually that may not be such a wise idea. There are two other chapters in, in that section of the book. One is about obsessive states of mind. Uh, and be worth yeah. unpacking that a little bit, yeah. Obsessive states of mind. <laughs> Occasionally during the Cold War, you could, uh, particularly the early part of the Cold War, you could see that we were falling into this obsession with the Soviet Union as being, you know, 10 feet tall. Um, and even in the later Cold War, as the economy of the Soviet Union began to really be under pressure, um, the uh, state of uh, training, clothing, morale, uh, the diversity of uh, different ethnic groups that were present in the Russian armed forces, uh, the Soviet armed forces rather, tended to be underestimated. Mm -hmm. And the you know, sheer number of tanks or caliber of some of the excellent weapons that the Soviet Union produced, those tended, of course, to be highlighted. So mm -hmm. you, without really knowing what you're doing it, you're systematically uh, falling into this sort of ob ob obsession. Um, the example that I quote in the book in some detail um, was James Jesus Angleton, was a long-term head of CIA's uh, counterintelligence uh, department. And he became convinced that there was a Russian, a Soviet uh, master plan. And of course, there was some evidence there. Burgess, McLean, Philby, and all of that. But it led him seriously astray. Uh, and when defectors arrived, the suspicion of those defectors was extreme. You know, these must be plants. They're trying to divert us from uh, seeing what's going on. And uh, Angleton really infected Peter, the late Peter Wright of MI5, mm. author of Spy Catcher. Catcher, yep. Um, that you know, conspiracy. Uh, <laughs> this obsessive state of mind: there are spies under the bed, and so Wright uh, became convinced that, that Harold Wilson was a long-term Soviet agent. Um, he then had to convince himself that the Director General of MI5 and the Deputy Director General of MI5 must both be Soviet agents to have covered up the fact that the Prime Minister was a Soviet agent. And then they convinced themselves that uh, Hugh Gateskill, leader of the Labour Party, had been assassinated by the KGB or that predecessor in order to allow Wilson to become prime minister because he was the Soviet agent. And it's entirely circular logic. Mm. Uh, we know now very firmly and indeed from very convincing uh, Soviet sources or former Soviet sources that this is all nonsense. And indeed in Moscow, they couldn't understand any of this because they knew he wasn't. <laughs> Sure. But nonetheless, you know, yeah. people's careers were destroyed. Mm. We had the same effect in the United States with the purges of you know, un-American behavior and McCarthyism, yes. these obsessive states of mind. And then uh, the, the th sort of third chapter of that, that section is really about uh, manipulation and deception and faking and, you know, having to be aware of the fact that there may be people out there who
do want you to draw certain conclusions and they're manipulating the evidence to, uh, to uh, uh, persuade you. And then the third part of the book uh, is, is really about, given all of that, how can you actually apply both the methods and your little warnings about uh, falling into error when it comes to, for example, negotiations? How do you get win-win negotiations? Uh, and when it comes to partnerships, whether these are industrial partnerships, uh, the US-UK intelligence relationship, or just your personal choice of partner and relationship with a partner, how what does that depend on? And again, trustworthiness, regular, reliable behavior um, is key to that. And then at the end, my, my tenth lesson is that subversion and sedition are now digital. Yes. So very traditional ways of trying to uh, uh, undermine public confidence in the state set one group of citizens against another, uh, distract governments. Uh, these can all be done digitally, and therefore we have to learn to live safely online. So uh, including, as you, I think you uh, alluded to right at the beginning of this conversation, um, teaching critical thinking. And yes. I would start in schools yeah. because the upcoming mm. generation has known nothing but the digital world. Mm. They've got no background of the analog world to mm -hmm. set it against. All they know is that they're in a magical world where information is almost infinitely available yeah, at the indeed. touch of a button. Um, and that the very nature of the internet, the ad tech that we now are beginning to understand how the work, which are selecting through auction, the most click-worthy material, uh, and uh, selecting the advertisements, including yeah. the political messages, that are uh, directed personally Indeed. at you as the holder of uh, anything up to a thousand different dimensions of characteristic. Yeah. You're in that group, therefore you're the intended target of this message. So that's Indeed. the book. Yeah, no, no, it's and it's it's a fantastic sort of journey through all of those aspects you've mentioned, and it's so important and so vital right now because we have come through certainly the last just over a decade, I would say, probably decade and a half of having seen this real increase of the availability of information that you you know you touched on there, and I think for a long time people haven't necessarily understood how manipulated some of the information is that they're seeing whether it's by an algorithm which is just simply trying to get them to click on an advert or whether it is something that's deliberate deception that's trying to get them to think differently about an issue or to make a different decision when it comes to walking into a polling booth um you know these sorts of issues are uh, much more prevalent now and i think uh, i hope for, i hope that some of the recent sort of issue, you know stories we've seen things around the Cambridge Analytica scandal and um, you know how these things have been described in various places have, have helped people's awareness that actually what they're looking at on the screen isn't always going to be reliable I mean in, in you know in the open source intelligence field we used to joke about 
um, people saying, well, you know, I read it, I, I read it through on Google, so it must be, uh, it must be true. Um, but you know, <laughs> I think there is, a, there, there has been an element of that certainly. You know, that the people are sort of just uh, taking at face value information which they should question more thoroughly. And I hope that sort of some of the techniques and and methods that you've outlined in the book will help people to do that more thoroughly. But also, it, it, what I what I liked about it was that your focus is on not necessarily on, on the obsessive collection of information, which I think I think too many organisations, too many analysts as well, actually fall into that trap of trying to collect all of the information. And, and it was described uh, quite wonderfully by uh, John Gray, who was a guest on a previous podcast episode, where he said, you know, it's like as an analyst, we're trying to gather up all of the atoms, but it's not like Pokemon. We're not trying to we're not trying to catch them all. We're not trying to get we, we don't necessarily need everything to be able to make or to be able to build out that picture sufficiently to be able to make a decision. Has that been a change that you might have seen in your career that people have become, uh, or analysts generally, and, and maybe sort of people in the general population have become a little bit too obsessed with just gathering the information rather than thinking about what they're going to do with it? Yeah, if you were to look at the intelligence communities of the major nation, um, certainly the US and the UK, you could probably, I think, say that uh, we've overinvested in the collection side as against the analytical side. So we are still resting on quite a narrow base of analysts. I'm very pleased that over the last few years, the number of analysts in government has increased. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's now a professional head of intelligence uh, Mm -hmm. analysis in the cabinet office. There are more analysts and the sort of training that is provided is light years ahead of the almost negligible training, which was around, you know, when I was sitting on the Joint Intelligence Committee and watching the analysts at work. So that's all very positive. I think that uh, the, 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 the pendulum is swinging back a little bit. There are some areas of investigation like counterterrorism where you have to go for bulk. Right, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and then rely on the cleverness of the people writing the algorithms mm. to be able to filter and then selectively question enormous quantities of data. Yeah, so and you, you, what it, actually appears for the human analyst is still a manageably small amount of information, but with a reasonably high probability that it's relevant to an investigation. I don't think that's going to change. Mm. And the same is true of work on serious crime and where uh, to get at communications, communications data, internet usage and so on, you have got to go into the big numbers. But I still come back to what I said a little while ago that it's explanation. Yes. That in the end is what counts. It's, so it's it's I mean, I, I guess the art there is as much as you say, OK, it, it's vital to collect the bulk of information within that, though. I, I think I think what people sometimes misunderstand is that, you know, and this is this leads to that fear of bulk collection of information is that people think that it's all being looked at and it's all being read, which is not the case at all. I mean, it, it's that physically wouldn't be possible in any case. But the you know, what, what is selected and what is picked out and you, you, you describe their algorithms um, and in the book, you, you talked a little bit about that, getting the balance right between, you know, the machine and the human and um, ensuring that the analyst is able to sort of 
effectively see information that otherwise they would miss. You know, if they were trying to do this themselves manually and trying to conduct investigations just by following one lead to the next to the next, you know, you it would be too slow in 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 the instance of counterterrorism investigation to be able to effectively capture or, or prevent, uh, you know, some of these incidents taking place or identifying people who um, are, are liable to potentially carry out a, a terrorist action. And so there is that aspect of it, I think, which is that the algorithms themselves have to be well trained in analytical thinking in that sense. And, and the data that they're fed in order to get machine learning mm. has to be representative of the population that's going to be sampled. Yeah. And there have been some well publicized cases where people just haven't been able to get the right kind of data. So the results you get are biased. Mm. Uh, but over time, uh, you know, as these lessons are learnt, people will get better at that. But one of the important uh, reassurances, I think, for the public in a liberal democracy like the UK is that right from the start of even thinking about designing such a system, uh, the designers have to have in mind uh, privacy considerations and mm -hmm. our Human Rights Act. They've got to have safeguards built in all the way through and audit trails. Uh, and that's one of the differentiators between how you know, we would use intelligence and how, for example, the Chinese would use mm. bulk uh, data, which, of course, they also have and access. It's that point which and, and care that at every stage you're not actually falling into the trap of mass surveillance. Mm -hmm. and just yeah. roaming through data, hoping somebody's done something wrong and you'll find it. It's specific investigations for specific purposes with algorithms that are targeted on a probabilistic basis to have the best chance of pulling out data that will help that investigation. Mm -hmm. So I'm reasonably confident that uh, we'll go on being very responsible. There's a final point uh, that I'd would quite like to make, which is mm -hmm. we've talked a lot about the problems of the mm -hmm. modern internet and social media, and those are driven by the business model of yeah. the internet. Uh, it's and that's not going to change. But I think I do emphasize, and I have tried to do this in the book, that we are completely dependent for our future economic and social uh, growth on the internet. Just imagine yeah. COVID without Zoom and Teams and all the rest of it, <laughs> FaceTime, and how Indeed. we would have lost touch with our nearest and dearest. Um, so it's a huge boon and a benefit that's going to be a further big increase in internet usage. It will mostly be in the, uh, 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 the global south. Um, and it's going to be liberating in every yeah. sense. So it's a great thing. And I say that my final plea in the book is just learn to live safely in that world so yeah. that we get the benefits, but we don't have to pay the price of all that misinformation and disinformation and threats to our democracy. Yeah, indeed. And and that's that's such a, a useful and optimistic point, I think, to to make it because you're right. Sometimes we do focus too much on the problems and sometimes we focus, especially and you, you alluded to this earlier when we're talking about intelligence and learning about intelligence. 
we focus too much on the failures, which tend to be more public and, and the successes don't tend to be talked about. Um, the, the the other aspect of it that struck me was that within the book, the, all of the lessons that you're describing and, and the, the challenges inherent in doing analysis uh, uh, and, and conducting um, intelligence work generally haven't necessarily changed over time. In terms of you know dealing with incom- the incomplete picture, not having all of the information you would want, or having information which is contradictory, and then needing to make sense of it. Um, but do you think that? Well, firstly, you know, obviously, as you talked about, the, the information environment has changed, which has meant that intelligence methods and, and the way organisations deal with intelligence has to uh, has to adapt. And for individuals, we've got to be more conscious of how we're taking in information and. We, we, we discussed critical thinking skills being one example of that. Um, but what do you think has changed or have you seen changes in, in maybe the last 10 or 20 years in intelligence and the way that it's conducted and things that people um, are doing now, which perhaps they weren't doing 10 or 20 years ago, which are improvements, which are ways of doing things better that uh, analysts can apply that perhaps they weren't weren't necessarily using 10 or 20 years ago? It's a very interesting question. One of the ways of looking at this would be to say, what's new? Mm. Yeah. That, the, you know, Bletchley Park uh, <laughs> veterans wouldn't recognise. For example, mm. uh, direction finding is as old as radio. Yeah. Uh, now it's mobile phones and ge- we call it geolocation. Sure. Uh, yeah. Imagery. Imagery mm. is as old as photography. Um, we have uh, traffic analysis in the old days. Today we talk about communications data analysis. Mm. It's the same thing. But the bits that are new, I think, are firstly scale. Yeah. You can look at things at scale if it's in numbers because you can crunch numbers and, and, and process them and display them in a way that in the analog era you couldn't, and the best example of that is imagery. Mm-hmm. So you had Constance Babington Smith pouring over in the 1944 a, a small number of photographs of strange rockets on launchers on the coast of Europe, the famous V1 mm-hmm. launchers. Looking at them with us through a stereoscope by hand. Now you have high resolution imagery of virtually every corner of the world. Yeah, yeah. There is no conceivable way that you can look at it all. So it is possible at scale to do that if you've digitized the process. Yes, indeed. And, and we find you've you know, applied some very smart algorithms so that it is known that this uh, farmstead in some in Syria um, has is associated with a certain rebel group a four by four drives up at the front door you want a bell to ring and the analyst to be shown that photograph that's sort of in the realms of the just about possible Mm. so scale timeliness is another because it's all happening at just under the speed of light Mm. yeah Um, And that makes a big difference to what customers actually expect. So the days when you had to transmit the news of the Battle of Waterloo, you know, (laughs) by horseback. Uh, (laughs) 
now it's the, the now that's quite dangerous because it tempts people to think that remotely you can as it were take charge of situations and, and so on and yes disempower the person on the ground if you're not careful but that's scale and pace um, I think provide entirely new dimensions to mm. the business of analysis uh, the old days but the rest of it the rest of it what you're trying to achieve and the sort of ways and my outputs my four mm. outputs from the C's model uh, would have been recognisable to Francis Walsingham advising Queen Elizabeth I. <laughs> yeah, he indeed. Wouldn't, I, he wouldn't have expressed it that way. No, that, no, probably that's not. Essentially, no. what he'd been trying to do. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, yeah, well that, that was that's wonderful. been fantastic. Yeah, you know, this has been wonderful. Yeah, thank you, um, uh, and uh, t thanks for taking the time to come and talk to us about this. And uh, like I said, really enjoyed the book. I'm sure plenty of our listeners will do. Um, and yeah, we'll hopefully get you back at some point in the future to talk more about intelligence because there's so many things that I'd I'd love to spend more time delving into that we've just touched on in this discussion, but uh, could deserve entire episodes of their own. So thanks again for for, for joining us and for taking the time. A great pleasure, and thanks for having me on the podcast. <laughs>